Luke chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, hear now the word of God. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we can begin to understand the experience of these shepherds and what these words that they heard meant, how it drove them, how it informed them, how these words sanctified them and even the experience that they would have because the story's been brought to us and Father, we do pray that we would embrace it for the glorious thing that it is in Jesus' name, amen. There is a uh, somewhat apocryphal story concerning Thomas Aquinas meeting the Pope. And uh, normally, if you look the story up, it's, it says Aquinas and Pope Innocent II. But having done a little research, I realized they didn't actually live at the same time. So it wouldn't have been that Pope. It would have been Innocent IV or Gregory or a different, a different Pope. And I'm not even sure if the story is true. But... The story is Aquinas encountering the Pope, and the Pope is counting a bunch of money, and he brags to Aquinas. He says, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none, which is a, a, which is a reference to Acts chapter 3, where Peter heals the, the lame man, right? He's, he says, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have in the name of Christ I give to you. Well, Thomas seizes this, looking at the Pope, surrounded by all the money, and he says, true Heavenly Father, or true Father, not Heavenly Father, true Father, but neither can the church say, arise and walk. Well, you know, the unique historical supernatural abilities given to the apostles notwithstanding, I'm leaving that alone for now, the point of the story is well taken. There appears to be kind of a negative corresponding relationship between the focus on externals, mainly in the Bible, money, right? The love of money is the root to all sorts of evil, the rich young ruler. There's a, there's a negative corresponding relationship between those things that are external and the value of those things that are actually valuable. Those things are kind of pit against each other on a regular basis. Now, I'm not approaching this as some sort of Gnostic, anti-materialistic, pseudo-spiritualism. We need material things. We need external things. We should work for material things, and we should pray for material things. Of all the things give us this day our daily bread might mean, it certainly means I need bread. Right? It's got to include bread, right? So should, we, should, we should concern ourselves with things material. At the same time, there is the ability for those things that can disappear in a moment's notice to take refuge in our heart and take control of us. Later in this gospel, 
Luke is going to write about the rich fool. Perhaps you're familiar with that. We'll get into depth into that later when we get into Luke chapter 12. But you know the parable of the, the rich fool. He's got these fields and we're told that they produced plentifully. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think if you're a farmer, you want your fields to produce plentifully. And then it says, you know what, I need bigger barns. I don't think there's, I think that's a good business decision. You know, I got a lot of stuff here. I don't want it to be ruined. I need bigger barns. So far, so good. But the parable takes a wrong turn when this man starts talking to his own soul. Soul? And this is what he says. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, I don't doubt that there are a lot of subplots in terms of the sin. For example, what about your neighbors? It's all about you. You're not going to take care of your neighbors. That's not the main point of that, of that parable. It would appear that the heart of this folly is the contentment in his own heart with his own soul based upon things that could disappear immediately. I mean, that's where the parable goes. Things that you can lose in a moment's notice. Anything you can paint. That's the question in the parable. Quote, fool, this night, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I mean, the point is given in the parable, and that is people who are unconcerned with being, quote, rich toward God. Glitter. Boy, we live in a world of glitter. Glitter can be such a distraction we read in 1 John 1, 16 and 17, one of the best passages in all of Scripture when it comes to glitter. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The glitter. Back when television was safer to watch, there was a TV show called The Andy Griffith Show. <clears throat> and there was an episode uh, of this show where we see a dialogue between Andy and what they used to call a hobo, played by Buddy Epson, Jed Clampett, who actually would have been the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, but he got sick. A little history there, a little showbiz history. <laughs> But apparently what happened was Andy's young son, Opie, who's about eight years old, kind of developed a relationship with this hobo when he was being influenced by the hobo to do things that he maybe shouldn't have been doing. You know, the hobo would steal stuff and kind of was living this life that was kind of romanticized. And so Andy, Andy visits Buddy Ebsen, and they have a dialogue. And in this little chat, Andy tells the hobo that Opie is having a hard time telling right from wrong. And then he says, you know what? 
that's uh, not an easy thing. Lots of grown-ups have a hard time with that as well. And I, a little subtle jab at the hobo at this point. Point is, Andy doesn't want Buddy Epson hanging out with Opie. Now, there might be other, you know, the 60-year-old hobo and your 8-year-old son maybe shouldn't be hanging out anyway, but it was the influence. And in this dialogue, Buddy Epson says, look, and I know I bend the law a little bit. So he's acknowledging he does wrong things. But then he asks Andy, he says, and I wrote this down verbatim, who's to say that the boy would be happier your way or mine? Why not let him decide? How many times have you heard that? You've got to let your kids decide. Really. Just let them decide. Let me tell you something. They will decide. That's going to happen. The question is, you know, do you let your three-year-old decide? Do you let your one-year-old decide? At what point are you no longer part of the decision-making process? Well, Andy wasn't having it. He says, I'm afraid it don't work that way. You can't let a youngin decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on it. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. You know, I have to say, you know, moving away, I can't tell you how many people, adult people, that I've interacted with who've got lifelong difficulties that, that began when they were 13 years old and it got the hook in them, and they're dealing with it to this very day, and they're in their 50s or older. The kids, the decisions that you make right now are going to affect you for the rest of your lives. And he goes on, he goes, wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter, it's hard to convince them that other things might be better in the long run. All a parent can do is say, wait, trust me, and try to keep temptation away. I hope you children hear that. And I hope you parents hear that. That's the job. The job isn't to let your kids make their own decisions. The job is to protect them, to watch over them. You're accountable to God for them. I don't think when this came out in the early 60s, it was all that cutting edge. It is now, though, isn't it? Well, let me tell you something. Religion if I'm using the term broadly, can be the same way. Religion can be marketed, packaged with all sorts of glitter. And I think that idea plays into this current passage that we're looking at. Just so we understand where we're at in our current text, Mary and Joseph are called from Galilee to Bethlehem for a census. We talked about that last time, about an 80-mile Journey, and when they arrive there, it's time for Mary to, to deliver her firstborn, who is Jesus. We're told that last week we talked about the inn is full, so they end up lying him in a manger. And then the scene changes. We go from the discussion with Mary and Joseph and the inn and the baby to, to the shepherds out in the field. At night, for some reason, I mean, we're so used to it, we probably don't even think about it, but for some reason, God deemed it fit for one of the first recipients of this message of the birth of Christ to be shepherds. I mean, we take it for granted because we see the nativity scenes, but that's really kind of an unlikely choice 
in terms of human standards. If you have big news, the first people you call are not the shepherds, you know. Right? You call the newspaper. You call, you know, the, the TV show. You know, you, you're like, how do we get this? No, but it's shepherds, and I think there's a purpose for that. And after they are told that Christ is born to you this day, they are told of a sign. Sometimes we, we, we read that, but I, this time when I read it, I'm like, a sign? What? Verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. How is that a sign? What, what is that a sign of? I mean, I think we read it and we just move on. You know, signs point to something. Signs reveal something. Well, for one, I think it's a sign that what they just heard from the angel is true. Now, that might be obvious. We might be inclined to think that any encounter with some supernatural celestial angel would be sufficient and not need further verification. The angel told me, end of story. I would say in this, we underestimate our own weakness. I mean, we do think that, no, God, if you, just, if you just showed me something, send an angel down. And then I'll be a good boy. And and one of the reasons that I'm a, you can ask me this, not today, today's our prayer day, but next week. One of the reasons I'm a presuppositional apologist, and if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it right now, is because, because the guards at the tomb of Jesus saw an angel. Matter of fact, they saw an angel and it so affected them that they fell down as if dead. You would think at that point they would be like, I got to change allegiance here. But what did they do right after that? They received a bribe to tell a lie about the resurrection. That's how hard the human heart is. The human heart is so hard that we need a, we need a supernatural act of God to soften it. Not even an angel can change that. Later in this gospel, I think Luke will give us an MRI of the darkness of the human psyche. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. So, you know, they die. And, you know, the rich man is in torment. And he's got brothers you know, I mean, I'm shortening the story because he, he first wants to be comforted himself and there's a big chasm between you and me. There's no purgatory in there anywhere, by the way. And he goes, well, then send him to my brothers that they may not come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, well, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets. Now, what are Moses and the prophets? Well, it's right there in parentheses. It's the word of God. If they, 
if they, he's, now he's kind of going, look, let me explain to you what is going on in the hearts of your brothers. If they do not hear the truth of God's word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, the human heart is so hard that if by the Spirit of God we don't see the truth of God's Word, if somebody rises from the dead, it's not going to make any difference. This incessant request for miracles by skeptics would be insufficient to soften their hearts. Perhaps you were here in the debate, one of the debates we have with the atheists, and I asked the guy, what would you require? Like, what kind of supernatural miracle would you need? And he said that there would be two moons. Like, how would two moons convince you there is a God? Would you not just draw the conclusion that our moon was pregnant? And another moon, wouldn't there be some natural explanation? And you know what he said? He goes, yeah, we'd have to exhaust the natural possible explanations. I'm like, okay, well, how long will that take? Forever. Of course, the shepherds, and I hope us, if I hope we I include all of us, do not have hearts hardened to the truth. Even still, how often God needs to remind us of the glories of his promise. Like even during the, during the membership vows today, I'm talking about, you know, in a wedding, you know, I'm reminded, Lord's Supper, we're reminded, pardon of sin, we're reminded. It's almost like God is going, you forget so easy. You need to be reminded over and over and over again. Similar to our participation in the sacraments, the shepherds are going to hear and then they're going to find the sign, right? Word and sacrament. I'm not saying that the baby was a sacrament, but sacraments are a sign, right? They're signs and seals, so they're going to hear it, and then they're going to go see it. This will further strengthen and confirm their faith, which is what God does for us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. But I think the sign contains more than that. The shepherds had heard that, quote, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. So they hear that. So you've got this promise from the dawn of history, this promise God made all the way back directly after the fall. It's now fulfilled. I mean, that's the, the, the declaration is God made a promise right after the fall of man, and tonight it begins. Now you're one of the shepherds, right? You're thinking, all right, well, what's traffic going to be like? Would there be royal guards? Are we going to be able to get by the guards? Because a king is born. Would he be distinguished from the other babies? Will he be wearing purple? Will he have a big crown upon his head? Are we going to need a backstage pass? See, the, the, the angel don't want the shepherds confused. He's swaddled among the animals. You just heard big news. And then they're like, okay, just so you know, he's going to be in a feeding trough. 
D.L. Bach made this observation, Messiah's life will contain an unusual bookend for a king since he was born in an animal room and will die with robbers. It's as if the angels were told in advance to temper their expectations. Temper your expectations. Now, in a moment, we're going to read of this heavenly army praising God, right? So you've got the host of heaven praising God. I can't even imagine what that must have sounded like. But when they find the babe, the only singing they're going to hear is the bleating of sheep and goats. Matthew Henry taught, when Christ was here upon earth, he distinguished himself and made himself remarkable by nothing so much as instances of humiliation. I mean, and I hope we can all appreciate the contrast here. I mean, I hope that we haven't read this so much that we've forgotten what you just went from this to that. In a moment, we're going to get to the word suddenly, right? It's kind of a big word. But in all of this, I think we need to be careful to avoid creating images in our head of the God we want God to be. We will inevitably... You got an image in your head of God? You got an image in your head of Jesus? You got that kind of floating in there? Because I can tell you right now, there are about eight paintings or photos that if we put up on the wall, you'd go, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, I know that guy. That's Jesus. I can't tell you how destructive that is. It's in my own head. I can't get it out of my head. When I see an image of Jesus somewhere, I just tell myself, oh, it's Peter. (laughs) Even though I know it's Jesus. You ought to read uh, J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God. He kind of addresses that very practically. He just goes, look, at any image we have of God necessarily obscures. Any image we have of Jesus necessarily will give us a false image of Jesus. Scripture is not unclear when it speaks, and I'll put it this way, of the insignificance of the way the Savior might look. The Bible goes out of its way to say the way he looks is insignificant. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, he's he's anticipating Christ here, and as a root out of dry ground. And then he explains, he has no form, that word form means, you know, this idea of of dignity or beauty, The, the Hebrew word means something that is impressive. He has no form or comeliness, that word comeliness means like majesty. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So if Jesus were in this room, and you walked in the room needing help, and he was seated right there, you wouldn't go, that's the guy I need. There's nothing about the way he looks, and we should dispense of that in terms of the way we worship God. And I do think that that's kind of happening right now where the angels are warning the shepherds, 
don't plan on being overly impressed because he's just going to be a baby in a feeding trough. What a remarkable contrast these shepherds beheld from a frightening, remember, the angel was frightening to them, and a heavenly host singing to a baby impoverished. They needed to know that the road to glory is often down a path of weakness, pain, sorrow, and for Christ and for many of his followers, death. What we're going to see as we go through Luke, you know, because I try to read the whole book over and over again and kind of get the whole thing in my, in my head, and one of the things you see in Luke often is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Be wary, friends, of presentations of the Christian faith that immediately deliver you to riches and health. I mean, I'm guessing most of you wouldn't fall prey to that. But it's pernicious because it targets the most vulnerable people. It targets the sick. It targets the poor. They put the glitter on their religion and say, come on in. And I can't tell you how many hearts have been broken, how many souls shipwrecked as a result of the glitter presentation of the faith. The call to follow Christ in the Bible is sure. That invitation, if you will, is certain. But that invitation to follow Christ may include sleeping with your head on a rock. Later on in this gospel, chapter 9, verses 57 and 58, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This is another one of those cost of discipleship moments. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You don't see that passage presented by too many televangelists. You know, I had a buddy recently pass away, and uh, I invited him. We actually lived together at one point, and I invited him to church over and over again, and he would never come. And then finally, he visited a church, and it's a beautiful church, like designed by a very famous architect. And uh, he, he told me, he's like, hey, I went to church. And I'm like, you know, part of me is just hoping that it's like a Christian church. And he starts telling me about the building. And he said, I'll not forget this. He goes, if there's a God, he's in that building. And I've been in that building. I've done weddings in that building. And it is a beautiful building. But it is sad that the beauty of the building kind of supplanted the beauty of the message. We were recently in Rome. I've been there a few times. St. Peter's Basilica. It is, it is both impressive and at the same time dark. You, you may, I walk in there, you know, it was built in the early 1500s. You walk in there and you wonder what a 15, 16th century peasant must have felt like walking in that building. Like the sheer power of the building. You walk in and you're just like, whoa, 
But at the same time, the message is dark. Well, so you might want to ask, what's reasonable? If you understand kind of my theme here, my theme here is you go from the angel to the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, to the baby in the manger. All right? So what is reasonable? I mean, we have a pretty nice facility here. I would say if you were to look at most facilities throughout the course of Christian history, we're in the top 10%, 12%. I mean, Jesus, like I said, he wasn't born in a palace, but he also wasn't born in a ditch, right? I mean, he's, it's, I think it's closer to a ditch than a palace. Well, I don't want to go too far in here, but maybe we can all learn from Agur. He wrote Proverbs 30, and verses 7 through 9 read, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see what he's saying? It's like, don't make me too rich and don't make me too poor. I don't want either one of those things to be distractions. The baby's born in a manger. And I think the point they're making here in this text is, you need to temper your expectations in terms of the path of redemption, because it's starting in a manger. It's not starting in a palace. And in the Bible, when we're called, as it were, to kind of follow the footsteps of Christ, we've got to recognize that he's saying, the same way I walk, you walk. The way they're going to treat you the same way they treated me. Are you ready to go down those difficult paths? Or are you expecting the Christian faith to immediately give you everything you think you need? It's a war. It's a battle. It's a fight. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Talk about a contrast. You know, that word suddenly, you know, it's not a normal word we see in terms of this type of conjunction. It's almost as if we need to recognize that at the mere mention of the name of the baby, all of heaven, the armies of heaven, break into song. I mean, it's just the magnitude of it. I was, I was tempted to go down a road I always like going down, and that is whenever you see the multitude of heaven singing. I mean, I think of Isaiah chapter 6, right? And Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy. It's like this, this worship service is going on. And he doesn't join in, by the way, in the worship service. What does he do? What's his response when he sees the angels flying around the Lord upon the throne? You know, the, 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 the stirring, the smoke, the train of the garment. What does, he, what does he say? What's his first response? Well, it's the first response that we try to inculcate in a worship service that the church always has. And that is, in the presence of God, we recognize our need for the pardon of sin. Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. 
And then one of the angels takes a, a coal from the altar and touches his lips and he says, your sin is purged. And it's not until that happens that he goes, okay, I'm, I'm ready, send me. And that's the way we try to open our worship service with this idea that God has spoken, the call to worship, God has spoken. And our response to that should be a recognition of our own sin and God responds to that by going, your sin is washed away. Let's worship. Let's sing. All of heaven is where it breaks into song. And I look at this brief song, at least the brief part that we have of it, because the angels are not confused when it comes to the chief end of all that there is. I mean, how does it begin? Glory to God in the highest. That's, that's what they're singing. Glory to God in the highest. Having met over a thousand times, really over 1,100 times, over about a five or six year period in the 1640s, over a hundred of the best theologians, pastors in all the world got together and put together a document, a few documents, you know, the Westminster Confession, catechisms. And by the way, they all had to agree. Can you imagine a hundred people agreeing, a hundred pastors agreeing on anything? So they all had to agree, which is probably why it took so long. And then they had to agree, what should be question number one of this catechism? What would be the very first thing we want people to learn? Because the catechism was, was designed for instruction. You, know, you have a question, you have an answer. You have a question, you have an answer. Number one, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The angels knew it, right? Glory to God in the highest. Let me just challenge you with this thought. If you find your life meaningless and without direction and without peace, it is due in large part to our failure to understand why you're even here. Why are you here? I remember um, years ago, I was invited to your class. Remember I came to Redondo? And I was very careful. This was a public school setting, and I was, you know, we have a number of teachers. One of them was like, our kids need a talking to. And I'm like, okay, but I don't want to get all of us in trouble. But I came in and I started talking about the Christian faith to these kids. And it was, to this day, and it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, but to this day, kids in that class will still come up to me. And, because it's almost like they'd never heard, they'd never heard anything like this, that which we all would have taken for granted. And I remember explaining them. I, I remember starting this message with what is uh, carved on the wall of the old Pier Avenue Junior High in Hermosa Beach, which is now a community center, because on the wall of the junior high that both my sisters went to is a Bible verse, right? Where there is no vision, the people perish. And I thought, okay, well, it's on a public school, so let's start with there, and then it'll take longer for them to kick me out of the room. <laughs> and where there is no vision does not mean my dreams. Where the, That word vision in the Hebrew means prophet, seer, the Word of God. Where the Word of God does not exist, people are going to perish. And I started with that, and we went. 
And we started talking about that. And I remember at one point we had Q&A, and it was just kind of adorable, because they're all just kind of like going, whoa, what's going on here? And one kid raised his hand, and he said, so what is the meaning of life? I'm like, this is really a wonderful time. And you know what the answer is? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if you're lost and if you're confused and you don't have that peace, that's because that has been somehow dismissed. And it's not just a catechism. If you, do, if you open your Bible, you're going to find it over and over and over, do all things to the glory of God. Peace on earth. So what is this peace that the angels are singing about? That's a word that occurs with great regularity in the Bible, peace. In a well-known passage, often highlighted during Christmas, we read this, Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, I would say this peace contains an eternal harmony, a, a tranquility, first and foremost, between God and man. I don't know if we realize this, but man's primary dilemma, and I think I can say this without fear of contradiction, the, the, the dilemma that's the father of all dilemmas is that we lack peace with God. That's our problem. That's the human problem. That's what happened at the fall. Peace with God was severed. We don't always think about this way, but in our, in our natural estate, as much as we have friends who aren't Christians who seem amicable and interested and all that, the natural estate of the human being is hostility toward God. Romans 8, 7, so we, are, we are at enmity with God. Now, people might be nice about it. You know, they're not going to immediately, not everybody immediately gets mad at you. But if you begin to press the issue, you might find that the audience isn't as, you know, friendly as you thought. But that is the problem of mankind, that we do not have peace with God. So first and foremost, when the angels are singing about this peace, it is peace that we have with God through the blood of Christ. That, that is first and foremost. It is, it is there that we have peace with God through the blood of Christ, that we can begin to experience this peace, the peace of God. Like that, I, we're reminded every time, like, things are okay. We're going to have a benediction later. You know what the benediction? It means good word. It is, it is God saying, it is well between us. Those of you who are married, have you ever been in an argument with your spouse? You don't have to raise your hands. But I have to say, you know, you get in an argument with your spouse and um, things aren't right, right? And then all of a sudden, one of them 
kind of goes, makes a gesture. It's good. I'm good. And that, I have to say, it feels pretty good. It feels pretty good when the person who's been hurt goes, you know what? We're good. It's nice. That's the benediction. The benediction is God going, go in peace. We're good. I want you to have, we're at peace, so I want you to have my peace. And when you walk out the door, I want you to know that the most important relationship you have in this world is fine because of Christ. And so you have peace with God, you have the peace of God, and then from that comes peace with one another. The Apostle Paul was dealing with a church that they couldn't get along with each other. He's like, don't you understand that you are one new person in Christ? Ephesians 2, 3, or 13 and 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, that needs to happen worldwide. We, we, you want peace on earth? Then we need to have a true brotherhood of man, sisterhood of men and women, and that only happens if God is our Father, and that only happens if we trust in Christ that we might be adopted. He's the Prince of Peace. And all peace flows from his fountain. And without it, there is none. And the impetus for all these rich blessings, where does this come from? Goodwill toward men. That God is exercising, the impetus is his goodwill toward us. We may, we may in our flesh be shaking our fist at God, right? That is the natural state we are at conception, we're sinners, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. I mean, the Bible is not unclear about the natural estate of man. We are shaking our fist at God in our natural estate, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we shake our fist at him, and what does he do? What does he, do? he sends his son for us. Because you're sitting here going, well, wait a minute, Pastor Paul. I'm not shaking my fist. Well, it may be true. Why? Why do you think that is? It's because he sent his son to rescue you from your own disposition. You didn't come up with that on your own. I want to conclude with this. I think it's worth noting that the heavenly host. Okay, so you got these angels singing. They are offering this praise in a way as mere observers. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're messengers and this and that. But, but they are not praising God for what he did for them. Jesus, the baby wasn't born for the angels. I mean, Hebrews 2.16 makes that pretty clear. He wasn't born to save angels. Yet we hear the angels sing. It is the act of redeeming beauty that Peter writes, things into which 
angels long to look. They just want to see it. It's as if the angels are watching a rescue movie and they can't help break out in applause, right? They're looking at what's happening and they just can't help but start singing even though they're not even in the plot. It makes me wonder how they feel when they hear us sing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet there there was a joy at the end of all this suffering that was the impetus for his perseverance. And Father, we are called to imitate that. So let us not grow discouraged if we find ourselves in the midst of difficulty, if we find ourselves not experiencing what we think we need or want at any given time. But let us recognize that in the same way, the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ followed his humiliation, followed his suffering, that we're called to that same path. And may we rejoice in it. We pray in his name. Amen.